Again, we'll be looking at Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31. Since we've read that, I will uh, not read it again here. It's probably uh, fresh on your mind, and I'm sure you have quite a few questions regarding this passage. Some of you may be familiar with the Reformed pastor and theologian by the name of Doug Wilson. Uh, Doug Wilson says a lot of controversial things, and he also says a lot of very true things and a lot of very wonderful things. And he has said rightly, uh, and I agree 100% here with what he said, he has said that we ought never to be ashamed of Scripture, that we ought never to be ashamed of any part of Scripture, nor should we as Christians feel the need to apologize for any part of Scripture. It's easy, I think we could say, to defend well-known and well-loved and well-accepted parts of Scripture. It is easy, in one sense, to defend much of the Gospels, except for the part where Jesus preaches about hell. It's easy to explain and publicly proclaim the good news of John 3.16. It's easy to quote that beloved passage in Romans chapter 8, where we're told that we're more than conquerors through Christ. It is easy, I think we would say, and have to admit, it is easy to claim the parts of Scripture that are naturally more positive, naturally agree with what we like to hear and receive. But it is much more difficult to be so courageous when we encounter passages like those mentioned this morning. 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Or what about God's decree of sovereign election in Romans chapter 9? Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. Or what about Romans 1, in which Paul, after listing all manner of sins, declares that those who do such things, he says, those who practice such things deserve to die. It is easy in one sense to tell people that God is love. But it takes a bit more courage to tell people that God is also perfectly just and will by no means clear the guilty, but will certainly avenge upon them his wrath for sin. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, in view of the passage that we have before us, to develop a resistance to the feeling that you may have and may have already experienced in reading this passage, the feeling that comes up where you you think you need to kind of apologize for Scripture or the feeling that you need to soften, try to soften its message or soften its edges, make it more palpable. I want you to resist the feeling that you might feel inclined to just try to explain Scripture or or, or come up with some sort of great cultural insight that would allow you then to say, this no longer applies. We need not pay it any attention. I want you to develop a resistance to wanting to, to desiring to explain away any passage in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, I call you, as Paul calls you, to not be ashamed of God's Word. To not be ashamed of any part of God's Word. Scripture declares of itself that it is the very word of God, and it is the very word of truth. Psalm 119, 160 says the sum, the very summary, the substance of your word, O God, is truth. Christ himself prays that his disciples and also that we would be sanctified in the truth, singular, the truth, in John 17. And he says, your word, O Lord, is truth. More than that, we're told from the very 
first words of John, the Gospel of John, that Christ is the very Word of God incarnate. So I ask you, shall we then be ashamed of the Word and apologize for it? 2 Timothy verses, chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That is that Scripture is so closely bound up with the character of God that Paul there uses that kind of metaphorical language to say that as close as our breath is to us coming out of our mouth, that is God and His Word. If God is so willing to be so closely associated with his word, what about you? Resist the feeling, resist the temptation that is becoming increasingly more popular to try to distance yourself from scripture and to distance yourself from the more difficult passages of scripture. There are many who believe today that we've arrived at a kind of age of enlightenment that we now know much more than the authors of Scripture knew. That tells you what kind of view of Scripture they have when they say that. They say that had they known, had the authors known, had the people of Scripture known what we know now, they would have done things much differently. I say that is pure arrogance to believe that we would know better than God what ought to be in His Word. Resist the urge to dismiss or set Scripture aside. Now, let me say, even as I say that, that we do not mean that everything in Scripture, everything that is depicted in Scripture, is that which has God's divine stamp of approval on it. Right? This is the difference between what is descriptive in Scripture and what is prescriptive. Those are important categories. Scripture depicts the world accurately. That is, it shows us what brokenness looks like. It shows us what sin looks like. It doesn't shy away from showing us the moral failures of people like you and I. It shows us what sin looks like and the consequences of sin. And so that means that we cannot take every single passage to be a uh, kind of implicit uh, divine approval of the content of that passage or chapter. It would be wrong, for example, to look at polygamy in the Old Testament and to say and to conclude that God approves of it and that we should practice it today. In fact, the Bible seems to make it pretty clear if we're being if we're doing honest exegesis that polygamy actually, in fact, brings greater brokenness and greater sin and greater harm. And this is, again, why it's so important for us to consider all of Scripture even as we consider individual passages and chapters. And I know John has done so much teaching on this, for which I'm grateful. Not only do we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, but we also read all things through the sum of God's Word, and the sum of God's Word is truth, and the sum of God's Word is Christ. Christ is the final revelation of God. We've heard this in Hebrews, right? Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets, but now... He has spoken to us through his son. That means all of scripture and its meaning and its substance is bound together in the character and person of Jesus Christ. So we ought to read all of scripture in view of God's redemptive purposes moving towards their fulfillment in Christ. And so that's what my desire is to do tonight with this notably difficult passage The right response, brothers and sisters, and the response that I would love for you to develop when you come across passages like this, the right response is, again, not to try to avoid it, not to try to explain it away. The right response is to earnestly seek out what God is intending to communicate in and through his word. We're to ask God for wisdom to understand his word and not just to understand it, but also, as the psalmist says, to love God's word, to love his law. This is the right response. 
And as I've spent time studying this passage, meditating on it, thinking through it, this is what I've been trying to do, asking the Lord for wisdom and not trying to make excuses. So as we begin, why don't we do that together? Let's ask the Lord for wisdom as we open his word. Psalm, the psalm and psalmist in Psalm 119 also tells us the, that the unfolding of God's word brings light. And so let us ask that his spirit would unfold his word before us here tonight and give us that light. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do recognize humbly, Lord, that we do not stand above your word. But Lord, we want to, we desire to come under the authority of your word, recognizing that it is, Lord, breathed out by you, that the source of your word is you, O Lord. And so we want to honor your word. And Lord, we want to seek to understand. Father, I admit that that I am imperfect and finite. And Lord, I do not have all the answers, but I trust that you do. And so, Lord, I entrust this sermon and I entrust this time to you and ask, Lord, that you would work in and through my frail and feeble words to bring that kind of understanding that we desire. Lord, we depend upon you for all wisdom and insight. So, Lord, do that. Bring about wisdom. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So first of all, let's, let's kind of describe the circumstances of this particular law and, and what's, what's going on to kind of get our bearings. Uh, one of the reasons that we know various laws throughout the Old Testament in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy were given, many of the reasons these laws were given is because they were given as case law, which means that what would happen is, is that you would actually have a particular event like what's described here in this passage And the Israelites, not knowing how to govern or what to do, would go to the Lord or go to Moses. And Moses, through his intercession with the Lord, would come back with an answer for the people. And many of those very specific, that's why a lot of the laws are sometimes so specific. You're wondering, why in the world is this in Scripture? It is because they are case laws. They're examples in which the people were coming to the Lord to ask for wisdom about specific instances. And I think that that's true here as well, and the particular issue that this deals with, that this that this uh, law deals with, is the issue of adultery or infidelity, and it's adultery or infidelity, particularly on the part of the wife. Now, let me go ahead and say that with regard to laws over uh, about adultery, we need to remember uh, that there is equity in punishment for the sin. Of adultery. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 states this that if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer, that is the man, and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So when we look at this passage and we see particularly that it's dealing with infidelity on the part of the woman, we, we cannot then immediately think and say, or, or even wonder, why is it, does it, see, why is it the man that gets, gets off scot free here? Uh, the particular instance that we're dealing with in this is a situation in which there were, there were no witnesses. There's no witnesses to, to be able to actually determine whether or not uh, the wife has committed adultery. In Leviticus chapter 20, particularly, it's dealing with open adultery and open sin. And yet the punishment you see there is applied to both. It is applied to both the man and the woman. And that's important. But again, the difference here in this case is that there are no witnesses. Uh, This was not done in the open, but it was done in secret. And let's, let's just pause right there. 
and I even I tremble to say it, sins done in secret will be found out. What we do in secret, in sin, it will be found out. That is a sobering thought. But here we're told that in this case, there were no witnesses. We're told this in verse 13. It says this, if a, do you look there with me? If a man lies... Uh, with uh, the woman sexually, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act. So that's, again, the difference in the law between what we have here and what we also have in Leviticus chapter 20. Here there's no witnesses. There's no external witnesses to confirm whether the woman has committed adultery or not. Here seems to be the the point and purpose of this law and its circumstances. The point is verification. That is to say that this law, and it's important for us to see this. Okay, let's set our modern sensibilities aside for a moment. It's important to see that this law is intended to promote and to bring about truth and integrity in character. It is intended to bring what, what, what perhaps was done in the dark to light. It is, it is intended to either reveal purity of character or to reveal defilement. But in either case, the point is the unfolding, the opening up, the verification of what is true. And I'll say more about that in just a minute. So again, uh, this law is dealing specifically with a case in which the wife here is suspected of committing adultery, but there are no witnesses And this is uh, important as well. This means that it can't be confirmed unless by divine intervention. Let me say that again. The the guilt or innocence, uh, particularly of the wife here, cannot be confirmed unless by divine intervention. It is God who is perfect in justice, perfect in mercy. Not man. It is God who determines whether the wife is guilty or innocent. The next thing that we see in this passage that probably gives us some pause, probably gives you some pause, is uh, the uh, spirit of jealousy that is said to come over or upon the husband, right? This is kind of the motivation or the catalyst for why this is even a situation. The husband, it says, uh, is uh, taken over by a spirit of jealousy. It says there in verse 14, and so he brings his wife before the priest. Now, when we read the word jealousy, I could ask you, I could, we could take a poll. When I read the word jealousy, your mind most likely goes to a very negative place. If I had to guess, we tend to immediately view jealousy as that which is sinful. And we're not wrong to do so. That This is a right view of jealousy. The sin of jealousy does fall, I believe, under the 10th commandment, which tells us that we shall not covet. That is, that we shall not wrongly desire and long after that which is not ours. And this certainly applies to relationships between spouses. We might also mention uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, in which Paul rebukes the divisions and strife in the church in Corinth, which we've heard much about. Uh, he, he rebukes them particularly for their jealousy. Here's what he says. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? What, what, what's Paul doing there? 
Well, he's setting up a distinction between the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit. And he's telling us there, telling the Corinthians, rebuking them for their jealousy, which he is describing as a work of the flesh. Now, Paul draws this out even further in Galatians 5, right? Talking about how the the spirit of the flesh and the spirit of God are opposed to one another, right? And he, he specifically lists in that passage jealousy as a work of the flesh. And at the end of that passage, he strictly warns us saying, much like he does in Romans 1, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are jealous according to Paul, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Finally, in James chapter 4, James says this, also speaking of divisions in the church. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your jealousies are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel and bicker tooth and nail. It is clear, Scripture is clear, that this kind of jealousy is sinful and it brings ruin and division and brokenness. So let me say to you that it is right that when you read the word jealousy in Scripture, you ought to have a category in which you can understand jealousy is sinful. That there is, in fact, a kind of ungodly, unrighteous, and utterly sinful kind of jealousy that we might add every husband is capable of. However, we must also understand that Scripture is abundantly clear that there is, in fact, a godly jealousy. And that is a category that I'm not sure we spend so much time talking about. There is a godly kind of jealousy. James, in that very same passage in which he is rebuking the church for their pride and covetousness and jealousy, goes on to say only a few verses later, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So listen, in the same breath, in the very same breath, James is rebuking us for ungodly and sinful jealousy and then commending our righteous behavior and loyalty to God, telling us we should be loyal to God because God himself is described as yearning jealously over the spirit that he has put within us. Hmm. James here is probably alluding to a number of different Old Testament passages. One in particular is Exodus 34, 14, I think. And here's what it says. Let me read it for you. You shall worship no other God, says the Lord. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. His name is Jealous. Do you realize that what Scripture is doing there, it is so closely associating this kind of holy jealousy that it describes God's very name, that is his character, his nature, as jealous. I don't think I understand, categorically understand that kind of jealousy very well. And, and, and I would bet the, the same is true for, for us as well. And perhaps that's because we spend most of our time in the other category, the sinful jealousy. But what is God jealous for? God is jealous for the faithfulness of his people. 
In that chapter in Exodus, which is, by the way, a covenant renewal ceremony, in which God in mercy pledges himself again to his people who have just been unfaithful to him in making a golden calf in Exodus 32. But God in mercy pledges himself to his people. He renews his covenant with them and he tells them, he says, listen, I jealously, jealously yearn for your affection, for your adoration, for your devotion and your covenant faithfulness. Be faithful to me alone. That is an incredible and holy kind of jealousy. He says to them, and only a few verses after that, in some very sobering words, he says to his people, he says, do not play the adulteress. Do not go after other, other gods. Serve me, love me, stay faithful to me. So here's the point. When we read Numbers 5 and we read that a spirit of jealousy comes upon the husband, we have to have both of these categories in mind. We will be out of balance and led in wrong directions if we only have one or the other. We need to have both categories where we can understand there is a godly jealousy and there is an ungodly jealousy. And I think that wonderfully this law and this practice here accounts for both. This law and this practice takes into account that the husband could be motivated by a spirit of godly jealousy or he could be motivated by a spirit of ungodly jealousy. And let me talk to the husbands for just a moment. Husbands, you ought to be jealous for your wives. You ought to be uh, earnestly yearning and desiring her love, her loyalty. You should be jealous for her faithfulness to you. You should be jealous for her honor, for her dignity and her worth, and you should actively seek to protect that honor and that dignity and that worth. There is a jealousy, a godly jealousy, like that of our Lord, that protects and loves fiercely and desires the faithfulness of your partner. In fact, I would go so far as to say a husband who does not love his wife is one who neglects her. A husband who does not love his wife is one who could care less what she does, who she spends time with, what she wears when she goes in public, how she dresses. A husband who does not love his wife does not encourage her to, towards faithfulness. And he does not yearn for, to, to see godliness in her. Husbands, be jealous in love for the heart of your wife, just as God himself jealously yearns for the devotion and adoration and faithfulness of his people. These categories of jealousy, they've helped me immensely. And I believe they, they will help us to view this law and its practice in a better and I believe more accurate light. And this helps us to understand the purpose of this law. Remember I said that the, the, the kind of function of it is verification. It's to promote truth and integrity. It is the pursuit of truth. But we can also see now that this law serves to both protect but to, serves to protect both the husband and the wife. Let me explain what I mean. If a husband is given a godly spirit of jealousy over his wife and is concerned that she has been unfaithful but has no way to prove this, if he has no way to ascertain whether or not that this is true, through this law now, he actually has a means of pursuing the truth. 
The Lord does not abandon the husband who fears that his wife may have been unfaithful. The Lord does not abandon him to the fear and insecurity of wondering whether or not his wife has been faithful to him. But likewise, and perhaps more importantly, this law also protects the woman from an ungodly spirit of jealousy which might provoke a husband to take things into his own hands. Ungodly jealousy in a husband produces rage and fury and a rage and fury that does great harm. Proverbs 6.34 says this, For jealousy makes a man furious and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. This law, as I've come to understand it, rightly and specifically protects the woman from this ungodly expression of jealousy and instead provides the means through God himself by which she may be declared to be innocent, if indeed she is innocent. Right? The, the, the husband here cannot take measures into his own hands. He cannot simply divorce her. He cannot simply throw her out based on mere suspicion. But in fact, this law requires that he bring his wife to the Lord and set her before the Lord and say, Lord, do as you will. It is an act of faith in one sense, but it also, again, is, I believe, designed to protect the woman so that the man cannot take measures into his own hands. Notice as well that the, the priest here has an important role. And you see, you see glimpses of the gospel here. The priest serves as mediator between the husband and the wife, but the priest also serves as mediator between the husband and wife and God as well. And so the husband, if he was concerned that his wife has been unfaithful, would be required to bring her before the priest. He would be required to set her before the Lord and allow the Lord to determine her guilt or innocence. Now, what follows next has been described by many as a kind of trial by ordeal. In fact, many commentators even, uh, especially modern commentators, make comparisons between what happens next uh, to the events of the Salem witch trials, which really made trial by ordeal famous. Others claim that this ritual finds comparison with similar rituals in other cultures where a wife accused of infidelity would be forced to do horrible things like walk across a bed of hot coals. And if she survived the burns and did not get infected, they took that to mean that she was innocent. In other cultures, she might have hot oil poured over her. And again, if she survived, that was, de- that was the determining factor as to whether or not she was innocent or guilty. In these instances, the wife would be subjected to unjust cruelty and torturous Acts and would only be declared innocent of guilt if she, by some miracle, survived. So in these rituals, it was the survival of the woman. It was the survival of the wife that was the determining factor as to whether or not she was guilty or innocent. And let me say very plainly that that is not what this is. In fact, this ritual, if we can call it that, is marvelously distinct. Did you notice that although the, the water that the wife is required to drink is called the water of bitterness that brings the curse, it is nothing more than dirty water. 
Look at verse 17. And the priest shall take holy water. That was most likely water that was used in the purification rituals. So it's not like holy water that you use to fight vampires. He's to take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Beyond this, we're told in verse 23, would you look there with me? Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. So two things go into this water. Dirt from the floor of the tabernacle and ink. That is significantly different than hot coals, than oil. This is what the wife would be required to Drink. And again, the point is, brothers and sisters, this is not like the trial by ordeal or trial by fire that we see in other cultures where it is a miracle if the woman survives. In this case, don't miss this. In this case, it is a miracle if the woman is cursed. Did you catch that? Let me say that again. It is a miracle if the woman is cursed because she is drinking nothing more than dirty, gritty water. That's it. The curse is is the divine intervention of God if, in fact, she is guilty. This, again, demonstrates that it is God himself who is the one, the only one, who can declare whether or not the wife is guilty. And it is God himself who sets the punishment. And this is no small difference. By by comparison, my students and I were studying the Code of Hammurabi this past week. This was the prevalent law code of the ancient world. I think most suspect that it was written before uh, the biblical code, before Moses. Did you know that in the case, very similar to this one, the test for adultery in the code of Hammurabi, do you know what it is? It says that the woman is to go and throw herself into the river for the satisfaction of her husband. And if she drowns, she's declared guilty. And if she can swim, she's declared innocent. This is not what this is. If the woman is guilty in this case, it is proved by the hand of God who brings this curse. And the curse itself is a kind of poetic justice. You see, in this case, sadly, the adulterous wife has abused both the gift of marriage and of sex. And as a result, she is cursed by God, not by man, but she is cursed by God so that her womb swells and her thigh falls away. Now, without getting too descriptive here, the indication of the text seems to be that what this curse would do, it it would remove the ability for this woman to actually have children. And it would also limit or remove her ability to enjoy sex as God had intended. And as uncomfortable as those realities might make us, we should not shy away from grasping the reality that sin brings brokenness. It brings curse. It brings hurt and shame and harm. And the sin of adultery in Scripture is particularly severe. I believe God's justice is also on display in this curse in the final verse, at verse 31, which at first glance seems to be problematic, but I believe fits with the context of what's going on here. We're told very plainly that the man shall be free from iniquity, 
but the woman shall bear her iniquity. The, and I believe this is speaking of the husband. Because again, it, it, it is not verified who the woman was with. There were no external witnesses. So I believe that this is speaking of the husband. And the point seems to be that though the man and woman are one flesh, united in a covenant marriage, the wife alone, if she has been unfaithful, the wife alone will bear the curse. The language here is important in this sense. We're told that she must bear her curse. Because she abused the gift that God had given, the gift by which God brings life into this world, now we're told that she may no longer bear children, but instead must bear the curse. It's heavy. This is what sin looks like. Now, this is contrasted particularly with the woman who is proved by God to be innocent, pure and undefiled and truly faithful to her husband. Not only is she not harmed by the water, but we're also told in verse 28 that she is rewarded. Would you look there with me? It says, if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. Children in biblical times, as we wish it would be true today, were understood as tangible blessings from God. Tangible blessings of God. Children were understood to be the very favor of God. You read Psalms where the psalmist, particularly Psalm 128, will talk about that. And Psalm 127 will talk about the blessing of looking around a table that is full of children. And so the point here is this, that the woman who is pure and faithful is blessed by God. The woman is honored with God's favor. We see blessings in God's judgment. For he is truly perfectly just and perfectly merciful. As we conclude tonight, we must understand an an important point. Take this to heart. None of us are that faithful wife. None of us are that faithful wife. Scripture is a testament to the fact that although God is our faithful husband, we, the bride of God, the treasured and dearly loved possession of our God, We are described as those who again and again wander into unfaithfulness, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The minor prophets speak judgment after judgment against this kind of spiritual adultery, which God's people commit against him as they worship lesser Loves idols of their own making, and a powerful and daunting refrain that gets repeated throughout those minor prophets as those judgments come are words which tell us that there is a cup, a cup that is reserved for those who do such things. And brothers and sisters, it is described as a cup of wrath, a cup that is full of God's wrath against sin. Unfaithfulness brings curse. 
Unfaithfulness deserves the curse. And what we must consider together, together, together this evening, brothers, is that even as we approach this table, the cup that we deserve is the cup of bitterness, the cup of wrath, the cup of God's judgment. We, like Israel, have been unfaithful to our faithful God. We have committed spiritual adultery. This week, this day, this very hour, perhaps. Our hearts are not pure. And even if externally we may appear to others to be righteous, inwardly our hearts are perpetually producing idols, one after the other perpetually desiring the things of the flesh, perpetually hiding in secret sin. I do not want you to see the sins of my heart, just as I'm sure you do not want me to see yours. But our sins have found us out because we've been brought before the Lord. We stand before God Almighty who knows every intention, inclination, and motivation of the heart. And we are guilty before Him. We deserve the cup of bitterness that brings curse. But that is not the cup we'll drink tonight. The cup we drink tonight is the cup of blessing, not the cup of wrath. Because of one who in great love and mercy and unfailing covenant faithfulness took that cup of wrath and judgment and bitterness and he drank it to the dregs for you. That we might receive pardon and redemption and life. And how he suffered to drink such a cup falling to his knees in prayer as we heard this morning, saying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but thy will be done. There's a cup of wrath that he didn't want to drink, but he was willing to drink for our sake. On the cross, Christ took that cup of bitterness and wrath that we were made to drink, that God's perfect justice and his mercy might be fulfilled in him. The wrath of God was that day fully satisfied. There's not a drop left of it for you to drink. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The adulterer, the unfaithful bride to a faithful husband. And as he drank that cup down to the last drop, he passed to us a cup of life, a cup that runs over with blessing and pardon, pardon for sin and a peace that endures, life eternal in the presence of God. And when he comes again to take us to himself, we all sitting at the Lamb's table shall raise that cup together. And we shall know, like we've never known before, how precious was that sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, the cup of bitterness is bitter no longer. For Christ has made it sweet. Come taste and see that the Lord is good.
Let's pray. O Lord, our sins are many. Your mercy is more. How great was that sacrifice. What more can we say, Lord? We did not deserve it. Even now we do not deserve it. But because of your faithfulness, because of your love, the cup of wrath that was meant for us was taken by one so pure, so lovely, so faithful, who loved us by giving his very life for our sake. Lord, as we take the cup tonight, may we consider how great that sacrifice was. May we taste the sweet blessing knowing that the bitter curse that was reserved for us was taken on by Christ. Lord, we are all the adulterous wife, deserving of judgment and wrath, but receiving mercy and pardon. Lord, may we fall to our knees and weep to the praise of the mercy that we found. Great is thy mercy indeed, O Lord. May our hearts sing it. In Jesus' name, amen.